Open your Bibles to Rome, excuse me, to Matthew chapter 8, Matthew 8. We'll be looking this morning at the uh, end of this chapter, chapter, Matthew 8, verse 28 through 34. We live uh, in a kind of a schizophrenic age uh, these days. The world around us is uh, constantly telling us that we are in a basically materialistic uh, existence, that everything that we know or everything that exists is that which can be seen or heard or uh, quantified or studied under a microscope or some other instrument. And yet at the same time, the world around us is fascinated by the supernatural. On any given time, you can tune into any given network and probably find, uh, if not an equal number, maybe a greater number of of episodes and stories and shows dedicated to thinking about and exploring the preternatural, the supernatural, as much as you can the natural. People are fascinated by ghosts and spirits and telepathy and magic and witchcraft and occultism all around us. And while the world may wonder what is the balance between this materialistic worldview and the occultism, the spiritism that so fascinates and captivates their heart and mind, when it comes to a biblical worldview, the scripture is unequivocal. The supernatural world exists beyond the visible world that is around us. And it involves demonic forces of darkness that are active in the world in ways that are known and ways that are unknown. We don't always understand how these forces might be at work, but one thing we can be absolutely sure of, even as they are, is that they are subject to the power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture couldn't be more clear on that. Ephesians 1.19 Paul prays that the eyes of your heart would be enlightened to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his might, that he worked in Christ Jesus when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. Paul actually uses that phrase, heavenly places, a number of times, six times throughout the book of Ephesians. It's unique to that particular book, but it isn't necessarily referring to heaven itself in the traditional sense that we think of it. When he refers to heavenly places, he's referring to a place that involves at least the spiritual forces of darkness. Just like he says in Ephesians 6.12, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. So this is Paul's worldview. You and I are involved in a kind of a struggle that is real, that is active, and that involves the forces of darkness in heavenly places all around us, while at the same time, He assures us that Jesus Christ has been seated in such a place that he has absolute authority over all of those forces. And so there's no need to fear. You find the same thing sort of uh, reiterated again and again throughout the scripture. Colossians 1.16, by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 3, Jesus Christ has gone into the heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. So without even trying to define all of the ways that these forces and powers are active 
in my life or in your life or all around us, without even getting into the details, we can step back with the full assurance that those powers, whatever they might be, are in subjection to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that is without question. So that they can do nothing that they want to do, nothing that could be harmful to you and I, nothing that could be uh, disturbing to the world, nothing in their schemes or designs. They could do nothing that they intend to do were it not for the Lord Jesus Christ allowing it. And if he ever decides not to, they must stop. These assurances are given to us over and over and over again. Jesus is sovereign over the demonic forces of darkness, particularly as they threaten believers. Now, this power is not just something Jesus assumed when he rose from the dead and ascended into heaven. It is fundamental to who he is. The forces of darkness are no match for the sovereign Savior. And he demonstrated that over and over again when he carried out his earthly ministry. And today in Matthew chapter 8, we look at one of the most remarkable and memorable testimonies to that sovereignty and supremacy. It's an event here, as I said, recorded in verse 28 through 34 about an encounter with demon-possessed men, two demon-possessed men. Uh, They eventually have demons cast out of them, and we're told by the other gospel writers that one of the men responded to Christ in faith, and he becomes the focus of Mark and Luke. In fact, one of the men, we're told, was was uh, captivated or was indwelt by a, a, a demon who claimed the name Legion, meaning that there were thousands of these demons in this guy. It is uh, one of the most remarkable and uh, power-infused encounters that the Lord ever had on the face of this earth, and yet it is just a small testimony of the kind of power that is inherent to his name, and it gives assurance to us as believers. Now, before I get into any more detail about it, let me just take a little time to read the passage for us so we can understand what's going on here. Beginning in verse 28, it says, When he came to the other side, that is the other side of the Sea of Galilee, to the country of the Gadarenes, two demon-possessed men met him coming out of the tombs, so fierce that no one could pass that way. And behold, they cried out, What have you to do with us, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now a herd of many pigs was feeding at some distance from them. And the demons begged him, saying, If you cast us out, send us away into the herd of pigs. And he said to them, Go. So they came out and went into the pigs, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and drowned in the waters. The herdsmen fled, and going into the city, they told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they begged him to leave their region. That's a remarkable account on many fronts, Uh, not only because of the encounter that Jesus has, but the kind of responses that we're seeing here. And as you read through each of the gospel writers, they, they tend to emphasize different parts of the story. But for Matthew, he unfolds it for us in these kind of series of demands, Three different demands, one of them made by the demons themselves, one of them by Christ, and one of them by the people of the town, all of them ultimately unfolding for us and revealing for us Jesus' power over the forces of darkness. And I want to begin by drawing your attention then to these demands, beginning first of all in verse 28 through 31, the, the, the demand of these demons who destroy their host or they want to destroy their host. 
Matthew tells us that all of this took place when Jesus and his disciples had come to the other side. You remember we saw this last week. He was, he was getting away from Capernaum. He was getting away from what had been a, a taxing season of ministry. He was not going and looking for any kind of confrontation or any kind of trouble. He was actually trying to go and find a spot of rest. And so he travels across the lake, hopefully finding some some solitude and respite, but when they land in this territory of Gadara, which is predominantly Gentile territory, they arrive at a village named Gerasa. We're not told the name of the village here, we're just told the territory, but Luke and Matthew tell us that this little village of Gerasa, which is still there today in Israel, is the place where they landed. It's predominantly Gentile territory. And if you didn't know the geography, you would probably surmise that just simply by the pigs, because Jews considered swine to be unclean. They didn't eat them. They didn't touch them. They didn't have anything to do with them. And so the fact that you had a herd of many, many pigs who were grazing there gives you the tip off right away that this is deep in Gentile territory. So this village of Gerasa or Cursa, as it's called today, sitting on top of the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, is this area. And as soon as Jesus lands, he's met there by these two demon-possessed men, which if you understand the Scripture, if you understand even demon possession, it isn't immediately shocking to you that this is what took place. Because they had passed into this pagan, Gentile, idolatrous area of, of, uh, of Galilee, and you find this kind of demon possession often linked with pagan idolatry, because the Bible consistently draws a link between demonic activity and idolatrous, or what we might even call animistic religions. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul was encouraging the Corinthians to be careful when they are eating food that had been offered to idols or when they were uh, eating together with families who were eating food offered to idols. And he tells them to be careful with this because, he says, what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. In other words, Paul says that these, these pagan worshipers, they might go to their temple, they might go to their altar, they might lay something on there thinking that behind the piece of wood or metal or statue or whatever is there, that behind that is some sort of God when in fact, Paul says, it's a demon who has disguised himself into this image or into this concept And he has solicited the adoration and the contemplation and the, if you will, submission of these people to himself. And over and over and over again, you see this link in Scripture. Deuteronomy 32 says when Israel was in the desert, it says, quote, they sacrificed unto demons and not to God, gods who they did not know, to new gods that came up newly whom their fathers feared not. Later in Psalm 106, the psalmist says, when Israel was entering the promised land, quote, they did not destroy the people of that land as the Lord had commanded, but mingled with the nations and learned their practices and served their idols, which were a snare unto them. Yea, they sacrificed their sons and daughters unto demons. So you see this, uh, this link that the scripture establishes between idolatry and demonic activity. These demons lure people in through the guise of some false religion, through some sort of superstitious practice, some sort of idolatrous practice. They lure them in and then through the doctrines and through the practices and through some of the uh, belief systems, they ensnare people, even to the point the psalmist says, where people were somehow grotesquely convinced 
to lay their newborn children on an altar of sacrifice, burning them alive to these so-called gods. From the outside looking in, I mean, we recognize this is demonic. This kind of brutal, heartless, and cruel activity has every indication of the kind of activity of the enemy. And yet people were convinced that they were serving a God to their own benefit somehow. Even Revelation tells us in the days of the tribulation, people will return to this kind of pagan worship. It says in Revelation 9.20, the rest of mankind who were not killed by the plagues did not repent of the works of their hands so as not to worship demons and the idols of gold and silver and of brass and of stone and wood, which can neither see nor walk. So don't think that this is something of a bygone era. Don't think that Satan has given up on this, this aspect. Don't think that he has sort of laid aside that tactic for ensnaring people. In fact, even today, if you were to go around the world to various locations, you can find people who are still engaged in idolatrous behavior, still engaged in animistic religion, still engaged in making sacrifices to so-called gods, and in doing that, they are, they are rubbing up against, they are coming close to de- uh, demonic activity. In some cases, giving themselves over to demonic activity. And in some of those cases, even finding themselves possessed by demons. Outside of uh, Western society, which has maybe set aside idolatrous activity. You go into many developing countries, many Eastern countries, and you still find heavy influences of spiritism and demonic activity. So all of this should have been no surprise. It was interesting, I was reading this week that the Baptist Union of Great Britain published a paper on what they see to be a rise in spiritism and demonic powers even in England as people are attempting to connect with their loved ones through occultic mediums. Many of them, they say, didn't get to say goodbyes to their loved ones, particularly in the last year of the pandemic, and have resorted to these mediums to try to reconnect with these loved ones And the resultant effect has been an explosion of people with horrific consequences who claim that they are now bound to some sort of demonic activity, looking for ways to free themselves of what they've become entangled with. Satan and his demons have always looked for ways, whatever ways they can, through idolatry, through animism, through the occult, through mediums, through spiritism, through whatever it might be, always look for ways to seize control of people's lives and to destroy them. You actually see this, if you study the New Testament closely, you see this sort of link even in the New Testament. Nearly all of the accounts of exorcisms in the New Testament take place outside of Judah, In fact, all but one exorcism takes place outside of Judah up in the area of Galilee, which we know was was, uh, sometimes called Galilee of the Gentiles. In other words, in areas that had come under Gentile influence, you had... You had Gentile paganism and Gentile idolatry all around you, Gentile influence, and so you see these these demonic people that Jesus encounters there. At one point, even a Syrophoenician woman who came from far away outside of of, uh, Israel territory. When you go to the book of Acts, demon-possessed people living in Samaria or Philippi or Ephesus. In fact, the only time you ever see anyone who was demon-possessed down in the area of Judah was Peter's exorcism in Acts 5, which took place during a festival of sorts and uh, was probably a pilgrim who had come from outside of 
Jerusalem. So all of that, if you will, gives us kind of a background as Jesus lands on the shores of Gadara in the village of Gerasa. And they encounter these demon-possessed men who come from this Gentile territory where idolatry had dominated. These men had probably given themselves over to false worship and maybe wicked practices at a deep, deep level. They didn't just fall innocently into a demon. They didn't just brush against a bush along the way and a demon, you know, uh, seize them. If you read ancient literature, the Jews, uh, even the pagans, had all kinds of superstitions about the way that you could be, somehow uh, get taken over by a demon. They had, they had uh, certain days that if you traveled on, you could be seized by a demon. They felt like if you drank from certain kinds of water pots, you could be seized by a demon. In some cases, they even believed that if you pronounced a certain number uh, in the in, in numerical system that you could be seized by a demon. They had all kinds of these weird superstitions where they feared all the time being taken over by a demon, but the link that's established over and over again in the Scripture comes through false worship. And so these were men who had given themselves over to false worship and to demonic activity years ago. And now they had suffered demon possession for a long time with all of its ill effects. Matthew tells us that they were coming out of the tombs. They were living in the graveyard, in other words, which is one of the typical effects of demon possession, which is social isolation. It causes those who are oppressed by demons to withdraw from society. These men who were approaching Jesus lived in these tombs, which were probably cut into the limestone cliffs that shoot up from the Sea of Galilee along the eastern side there. Luke chapter 8 tells us that they had lived there for a long time, maybe many years. Cut off from society, cut off from friendships and, and family, all in order to add to the suffering of the victims of this possession. Not only did they live in the tombs, but they were emotionally and physically tormented. Mark 5 tells us that night and day they were among the tombs on the mountains, and they were always crying out, and cutting themselves. So they had these gashes or these scars all over their body, on, on, the, on their, uh, I'm sure their torso, their legs, everywhere, their arms. You could see blood and cuts just all covering their body. And on top of that, they were always shrieking and screaming in grief and mental anguish. Luke tells us that they wore no clothes. They were constantly exposing themselves to the elements. All of this was a part of the strategy of these demons to torment and ultimately to destroy their hosts. This is what demons wanted to do. They didn't want to just sort of settle down into some host body and live out the, the, the remaining days of that person. They wanted to destroy the person. And so you see over and over again these attempts at self-inflicted harm or even suicide. In Matthew 17, we'll encounter another demon-possessed man who throws himself into fires or even, we're told, tries to drown himself. They afflicted, they tormented, they isolated, and ultimately they tried to convince their victims to take their own lives. Not only that, these men were easily recognizable as demons because they had superhuman strength. Mark says that at least one of them had been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and broke the shackles in pieces. No one had strength to subdue him. 
which is very similar to the kind of image you see in Acts 19 when there, uh, some Jewish exorcist, having watched Paul cast a demon out of someone, thought they would try to do it themselves, and so they proclaimed the name of Christ over a demon. And these exorcists, who were the sons of a high priest named Sceva, there were seven of them, were told that when they tried this, the evil spirit turned around and answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man who was possessed by the evil spirit leaped on them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. So this one demon-possessed man basically overcame and overpowered all seven of these supposed exorcists. Incredible superhuman strength. These men that Jesus met had the same kind of thing. People had tried to bind them, but their strength allowed them to shatter chains and bonds that were put against them. And not only that, but Matthew tells us there in verse 28 at the very end that they were so fierce that no one could pass that way. They would come out of the tombs and they would literally attack anyone who tried to pass along that pathway. So you get this profile of the demon-possessed person that is, that is repeated again and again throughout the Scripture. Someone who is physically and mentally tormented, someone who is isolated from family and society, someone who is tra- constantly trying to harm themselves or even take their own life, and someone who has superhuman strength. And then we could add to that one more Someone with an altered personality. Matthew 8, 29 says, They cried out, What have we to do with you, O Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? So you see these these demons speaking through the person, through their voice, but with another personality, maybe even another name. And one of the things that happens frequently with demons you'll see in Scripture is that they not only speak with another personality, but they speak with supernatural knowledge. They knew who this was that was landing on the shore. They knew that this was the Son of God. They recognize Him. They call Him the Son of God, God in human flesh. Remember, these demons were ancient beings They were fallen angels who were originally with God in heaven before the fall of Satan. And so they would have been with uh, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. They would have been with Him in heaven before their fall. And now as He lands on their shore, they recognize Him. The Son of God come to earth in human form. And although they'd never seen him bodily, they understand the spiritual realm. They have supernatural knowledge. They recognize his glory, and they address him as the Son of God. They acknowledge his deity, and not only that, they acknowledge his authority. Have you come here to torment us before the time? So you can imagine as the uh, other disciples are landing on the beach and pulling their boats ashore and then coming out of the tombs are these two men yelling and screaming with no clothes on and gashes and cuts and blood everywhere. You can imagine what's going through the disciples' minds when this is all taking place. They were probably scared out of their wits, but then suddenly... These two deranged men come and Matthew, excuse me, Mark 5, 6 says they ran and threw themselves before Jesus. And they begin begging him, do not torment us. See, these guys knew the divine plan. They knew where things were going. They knew, we might say, their eschatology. They understood what God had said. They understood what God had planned. They understood the the prophecies of Scripture. They had all the right theology. You have to understand that. Demons have excellent theology. 
They have excellent theology because they have seen everything from the beginning. And they have read all of God's Word. In fact, they make it their goal to twist the Word of God. So they know that this is the Messiah. They understand the Trinity probably better than you and I do. They understand the character of God. They knew all about the cross and the resurrection. They knew all kinds of things that were orthodox and true. None of that was ever a problem. The problem is that they were unwilling to yield to it. So that the Scripture tells us the demons believe in God, but they tremble. James 2.19. They shudder. They know all the truth, but it doesn't give them any sense of ease in their heart and mind, in their conscience. It doesn't give them any sense of peace. They're terrified. They're frightened. They're burdened by what they know. And they will not yield to it. They know the truth of God's judgment. They know the truth of God's holiness. They know it, and it causes them night terrors. And so they understood all that, but they also understood that God's Word had talked about a time of judgment that came at the end. Isaiah 24 talks about judgment that's going to come on the whole earth. And 24 verse 21 says, On that day the Lord will punish the host of heaven in heaven and the kings of the earth on the earth. And they will be gathered together as prisoners in a pit. And they will shut it up, shut up, be shut up in a prison. And after many days they will be punished. All of this, of course, is fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. Revelation 20 talks about it. The devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they were tormented day and night forever and ever. Jude 6 talks about angels who did not keep their own domain but abandoned their proper abode. He has kept them in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment awaiting the great day. So these demons understood the plan. They understood the eschatology. They understood that there was a judgment and it was coming, but it hadn't arrived yet. And so they began to question him about the timing. They know it's not the millennial kingdom. Not yet. Because they know that the cross hasn't happened and they know the resurrection hasn't happened and they understand all this. And so they asked Jesus, have you come to torment us before the time? Or as Luke says in Luke 8.31, they were entreating him not to command them to depart into the abyss or into the pit, which is the final judgment. Now, at this point, Matthew tells us in verse 30 that there was this herd of pigs at some distance and the demons began to beg, if you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of pigs. They knew there was no point in resisting. All they could do was make a request. Mark is the one that tells us, by the way, that there are 2,000 of these pigs. And eventually, all of them, or at least most of them, are possessed by these demons, indicating the enormous number of demons that were occupying these two men. Mark's gospel, as I told you, They even declare their name legion. Jesus asked them, what is your name? Not because he probably wanted to know, but probably because he wanted the disciples to know. This was a legion of demons. Now it all raises some interesting questions to be sure. Why do they want to be sent into the pigs? And why does Jesus grant their requests? I mean, none of the Gospels tell us what the motives are here. We have to sort of deduce from all this. It could be that they simply thought that the pigs were a better alternative than being cast into the abyss. I mean, there was no better option in sight. Or it could be that the demons didn't want to be cast out and wander around homeless, if you will. Perhaps 
Uh, they preferred a bodily existence rather than sort of a bodiless existence. Or it could be that they wanted to destroy the pigs to begin with because they knew it would cause trouble for Jesus. That was their fundamental nature. They wanted to wreak havoc. They wanted to cause division and animosity. They wanted to undermine the ministry of Jesus any way they could. As a matter of fact, experts in uh, swine and pigs tell us that pigs do not naturally stampede. This isn't something that a pig or two would just get spooked and the whole herd would just start running together. That's not what pigs typically do. And not only that, when pigs are put into water, they're actually able to swim. So this wasn't just some sort of spooked herd that went running off into the water. This was apparently an intentional act of self-destruction. They wanted to destroy their host just like they wanted to throw their human victims into water or into fire and they threw the pigs into the lake because they knew, no doubt, that this would cause problems for Christ. Whatever their motives, Jesus concedes to their plans. We don't know exactly why he does that either. I'm sure it's a combination of things. Maybe these pigs were being used for pagan idolatrous worship and Jesus wanted to eliminate that. But part of it, I would guess, was that Jesus didn't want these demons to wander around this area any longer looking for someone else to take control of. And part of it, I'm sure, was for its visible demonstration of just the extent of his power. Not just one demon, but thousands of demons were subject to him. Which takes us from the demand of the demons to the demand of the Savior who's sovereign over these demons, a Savior who's sovereign over his enemies. Matthew tells us in verse 23, Jesus simply said, go. And they came out and went into the pigs and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank and into the sea and drowned in the waters. There's no ceremony. There's no uh, theatrics. There's no incantations. There were no external devices or props. He didn't need any kind of you know, special anointing oil or, or holy water or any of that stuff. All he needed was a single command from a single word and these demons were gone. Thousands of demons. He didn't even have to speak to each one of them. Just one word and they were all gone. They had all the strength and the power so that they could break chains, so that they could terrorize an entire village of people for years. But they were not a match for the single word of Jesus. You remember back in verse 16, we've already been told this, how the people were were amazed that Jesus was casting out demons with just a word. Because as we already said, they had their own exorcists. They had people who sort of went around and, and... and uh, presented themselves as experts in this area, and they had all their trinkets, and they had all their spells, and all their books, and all their sort of, as I said, their theatrics. They would go through all of these incantations in an attempt to rid people of demons. That's what people understood when they thought about this kind of activity. And then along comes Christ, and with just a word, the demons were gone. He did this one time in Mark, Mark 1, and we're told the crowds were amazed so that they were questioning among themselves, what is this? A new teaching with authority, he commands the even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. See, the Jewish people understood something. They understood that demons were powerful, and they also understood that power over the demons was a sign of the coming messianic kingdom. Later on in Matthew 12, verse 22, a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute was brought to Jesus and he healed him so that the mute man spoke and saw. And all the crowds were amazed saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? 
In other words, this power over demons, this eradication of demons, this is a sign of the Messiah. This is a sign of the coming kingdom. Even the Jewish writings looked forward to this day. The Testament of Levi, one of the apocryphal writings from that period of time, says that God will open up the gates of paradise and will remove the sword that has threatened since Adam and he will grant to the saints to eat of the tree of life and Belial, that is Satan, shall be bound where the wicked angels are rendered powerless by the Lord. Another book, the first uh, book of Enoch Enoch says the spiritual beings will corrupt until the day of the great conclusion, until the great consummation when they will be bound forever. So they understood this. The Jews understood this. Even the demons, everyone understood this. And so when Jesus exercises this kind of power, it was evidence that the messianic kingdom was upon them. As a matter of fact, later on, you remember Jesus even confronts the Pharisees when they're saying that he was casting out demons by the power of demons. And he says, well, if that's the case, by whom do your sons cast them out? But if my casting them out is distinct, and if my casting them out is by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you, he says. But not only is the power of Christ to cast out these demons remarkable. But so is his willingness. John Calvin says there must have been good reasons why these men have endured such severe punishment so as to have an army of devils, so to speak, dwelling within them. I mean, these guys weren't innocent. They had done some wicked things. Not only to expose themselves to demonic activity, but even after having been possessed by demons, they had done some wicked things. But the heart of a Savior was full of compassion as much as He was full of power. And no matter what these guys had been involved with in their past... He was willing to cleanse them and heal them. And he did it with one word. One word. It's the power of the Savior. In fact, when Jesus gets into the boat to go to the other side, Mark tells us that one of the men who had been possessed with the demon began begging him, can I come with you? But Jesus didn't permit him. He said, no, go home, rather, to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he's had mercy on you. This guy would have felt the mercy of God. He knew what his life had been. He knew about his vain idolatry. He knew about all of the people he had hurt. He knew about all of the wicked acts. And all he could do at this point was to declare the mercy of God. And Jesus commissions him to go do that. It's a really remarkable contrast to what what you see in the final few verses, a contrast to one final demand that we see here, the demand of the people. When they saw Christ, they panicked over His power. The herdsmen fled, we're told in verse 33, into the city, and they were told everything, especially what had happened to the demon-possessed men. And behold, all the city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw Him, they begged that He would leave their region. So these herdsmen go back, and they report everything. They had seen it, they had watched it, they saw the interaction with the demon-possessed men, they saw them cast out, they witnessed the interchange, they saw all the pigs, and the way they reacted, the way that they did, and ran into the sea, they saw it all, and they told it all. And when the people heard about it, they came immediately. 
you would think in order to worship, in order to connect with this powerful man, this man who cast out demons who they themselves for years were not able to control. But Luke makes it clear what was going through their minds. Luke 8.35 says they became frightened. And 8.37 of Luke says they asked him to depart from them for they were gripped with great fear. Apparently they were afraid, more afraid of Christ than they had been of the demon-possessed men. They feared Jesus more than they feared the demoniac. It's remarkable that they're unable to distinguish between demonic power and Jesus' power, the fact that one worked evil and the other worked good. It's remarkable that they were so blind to that obvious reality that these were men who were themselves destructive and destroying themselves, destructive of others and destroying themselves. And here was a man who made people whole. And yet they seemed to be more tolerant and more willing, if you will, to dwell together with the demoniac than they were with Christ. Not that different, really, than the Pharisees who later on would recognize the power of Christ and yet try to claim that he was doing what he was doing by the power of Satan. You could be amazed that people could look at the power such as that and not respond by putting their faith in God. But that is essentially what every believer is like. Every unbeliever, excuse me. That's not just these people in the village. This is every person born into this world. Romans chapter 1 tells us they see the power of God. They know the power of God. Romans 1.20, His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but became futile in their thinking, thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So they... So they see the power of God, they understand the power of God, whether it's in creation all around them, or whether it's in God's power over a demon-possessed person, or whether it is in the remarkable power of God to transform a life of a brother or a sister or a parent or a child. They see the remarkable power of God, it really envelops their whole life, and yet they can look at that power and suppress the knowledge of God that it, that it reveals and harden their heart against God. Even this is the work of the enemy. Even this is the work of the enemy. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 that if our gospel is hidden, it is hidden to those whose hearts have been blinded by the God of this world. They suppress the truth. Why? Because of their unrighteousness. They don't want to really live in a world where someone other than themselves has ultimate control. They don't want that. And so they want Christ to leave, to get in his boat and to get out of their country. There are so many people who are in this same place. They, they're trying to make sense of this world without acknowledging its creator. They might even see the kind of chaos around them that is arising out of what is ultimately the deceptions of Satan. And yet they will not face the reality of their own need and of God's sovereignty. 
That's true for some of you who are here today. You make excuses. You tell yourself, maybe if I could see God cast a demon out of somebody or heal somebody, maybe, maybe at that point I might believe. But the scripture says he's already shown you enough. He's already shown you enough. You have all the knowledge you need. And if you were there on the seashore that day, you would have been right with the villagers. You would have been asking him to get out of your life. Pushing him, driving him out. The Bible says proclaiming to be wise, thinking that you have a grasp on the world, you make yourself a fool. Listen to this. The demons, they know what's coming. They can't yield to it. They don't yield to it, but they know what's coming. God's call to you this morning is that you would recognize that as well. But unlike the demons, that you would repent. That you would be like that man who was cured, that man who was healed, that you would come and cast yourself at the feet of Christ and say to him, I'll go with you wherever you want. That's the response that this kind of power ought to generate in our hearts and minds. Well, let's stand together and be dismissed with a word of prayer and a song. If you're here this morning and the Lord has been working in your heart, maybe you've resisted Him for years, but in recent days, cracks are beginning to happen and you're starting to open the door of your heart to the Lord. If you're here this morning and the Lord is at work in your heart, let me encourage you, don't be like any of the townspeople. Be like the man who is healed. Come today and cast yourself at the feet of Christ. We'd love to give a, get an opportunity to hear that in our visitor reception when we're finished here in a moment. Down the hall to the right, I'll be there and others will be there. If this is you, if the Lord is working in your heart, please come by and see us. Give us a chance to rejoice in the Lord's goodness and mercy in your life. Father, we're grateful for today and thankful for this word. How grateful we are to know that we serve a Savior who is seated in the heavenly places above all of these dominions and powers so that no power that might overtake us would ever be too much for Him to overcome. Lord, I pray for those who are here today who believe that their life is too far gone, that it's too dark, that it's too overcome by the evil one to ever be rescued. May they see the power of God today through the word of God. May they understand your mercy. And may they come asking humbly that you would Cleanse them as well. Make them new creatures in Christ. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.